Worship does something to us. It does something to us. You might remember my friend Calvin said that the heart, the human heart, is a perpetual forge of idols, endlessly churning out new things to worship, right? More recently, James K.A. Smith has said, you are what you love. He didn't come up with that, but he's just one of the most recent ones to talk about it. You are what you love, meaning what we worship matters, what we value matters. Worship does something to us. See, we're all in the midst of a worship struggle. We talk about that often here, and rightly so. We're all in the midst of a worship struggle, but as we're in the midst of that struggle, we have to recognize that how we respond to the temptations to worship something other than God, well, it does something to us. We're all worshiping someone or something. And maybe we could just talk about the someones, and we could probably just summarize your battle with idolatry or the issue of worship in our lives with, with two responses. The one response is we say no to temptation and we worship God. That's the win, right? That's what we're shooting for. That, that's what we were made for. We were called to worship God. We're created to worship God. But when we don't worship God and we worship something else, almost always, and maybe we could argue always, we actually are just worshiping ourselves. So if we worship money, we want money because of what it will give us. So ultimately, I am the the primary one in my worldview. I'm the most important. We worship pleasure. I want to feel good. So I'm my God. We worship career achievement. We worship uh, peer approval, having lots of friends. We worship, you know, uh, performance, whatever it is, right? Ultimately, in that situation, we're worshiping ourselves instead of God. And worship does something to us. When we worship ourselves instead of God, it isn't pretty. Bad things happen. See, Matthew's not very nativity-y nativity. Thanks, Pastor Josh, for that last week. Matthew's not very nativity-y nativity. I shouldn't have said that. I take it back. Anyway, Matthew's not very nativity-y nativity continues by pressing the issue of our response to Jesus. Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Remember last week, that's where we ended up. That, that Mary had the miraculous child, that he's now been born, and he is Emmanuel, God with us, and he has been named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so we, we now ask the question, well, how will we respond? And Matthew gets to that by telling us about the visit of the Magi, right? Now listen, these guys are so well-known and so misunderstood. Can I get an amen? Yeah, well, we're going to clean this up this morning and try to get a better beat on what's really going on here. There are a lot of questions that we want answered about these guys that we can't answer. But what we can do is we can follow God's word and just, you know, get Matthew's point. Why tell us the story? Why does it matter? So let's consider here uh, the, the Magi. And as we read this, this section of Matthew's gospel, we'll note how Matthew contrasts the Magi's response to Jesus with Herod the Great and the Jewish leadership's response. And Matthew does that on purpose. Worship is the central issue, and he wants you to ask the question, wait a minute, who do I identify more with in this passage? Where, where, where am I in my struggle in worship? Well, let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1, and see where we, had, we, where we end up. So in verse 1, Matthew writes, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, Wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem before we run on ahead. Uh, Let's talk about a couple of these characters here. First of all, King Herod. Uh, In history, he's known as King Herod the Great. 
Um, he was great at being terrible, so that's why they call him that. No, that's not. Nobody gets a nickname for you know. Like, and when you're king, you nickname yourself. So you're not going to nickname yourself Herod the Terrible, unless you mean it like you know in warfare or whatever. No, he he thought he was great. Well, he was great at claiming power. He was great at protecting his throne. He wasn't born king of the Jews. He was born to an Idumean and Nabataean mom and dad. He had to buy the kingship over Israel, which he effectively did through political alliances that he made in Rome. So this guy, Herod, he was king. He was not to be messed with. He was famous for keeping order through uh, basically uh, severe violence. He was so paranoid about protecting his own throne that he killed one of his wives, two of his sons, and her whole family. That's how serious this guy is about being king of the Jews and how hard he worked to get it. So there's King Herod, Herod the not-so-great. And he's, he's serving as king uh, over Israel at this time as a basically puppet ruler for Rome. And in the midst of his reign, at, actually right at the end of his reign, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Some of the older translations may actually just reflect the Greek original there, magi, okay? Uh, it doesn't say kings because they weren't kings. I don't care how many times you've sung the song, we three kings, they're not kings, okay? What were magi? Magi were basically uh, high-level priests who served in the courts of pagan kings, probably Persia or Babylon. We don't know for sure where in the east. Some people think the Arabian Peninsula, that's also possible. Um, we don't know, and it's okay that we don't know. But the, the bottom line is this. We know that, generally speaking, to be a magi was to be involved in some kind of sorcery to try and read the stars in astrology, try to predict what's going to happen by what you see in the stars, and also maybe try to read omens through examining animal entrails, and then you advise the king of your land based on that. So these guys were well-paid. They were high-functioning in the governments of their, their home country, all right? So these guys show up in Jerusalem. It was an entourage. It was a big deal, okay? There were a lot of them. As we'll see later, of course, they're bringing uh, lots of swag with them. And for those of us who are over the age of 40, swag means gifts, okay? So gifts, all right? Verse 2, what did the Magi say? There they show up. They go to King Herod saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, knowing what we already know about Herod and knowing what we know about these Magi, this must have been a fascinating conversation. They show up to King Herod. They say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Um, we don't have any documentation on this, but I have it on good authority that perhaps Herod the Great's hair on the back of his neck stood up when they said that. That he, he, he kept his composure, but his ears turned red, right? Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? How do they know? Well, verse 2, for we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. We saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. These guys were experts in the stars. And so somehow they had seen something in the heavens that indicated to them that they should come to Jerusalem because a significant king had been born. This is surely only because of the gracious provision of God. That God is doing something much bigger than just with the nation of Israel here. And so, yes, he gifts to some pagan priest astrologers he gives to them a sign in the heavens that leads them to Jerusalem. 
There's been a lot of debate about what the sign was. Was it a comet? Was it a particular, you know, you know, um, constellation? You know, what, what happened? And uh, we can argue, I think, most likely from the, the way Matthew writes about it, that this was a supernatural sign. So it wasn't a naturally occurring um, sign in the heavens. This was a miraculous sign, either a miraculous temporarily appearing star, possibly angelic even. Now, that might fit well with the narrative. But one way or another, these guys saw something that caused them to say, we need to get to Jerusalem because the king has been born. And we don't know anything else than that. Some scholars think perhaps they had access to the book of Daniel if they were in Babylon, and that helped them figure out to wait for the Messiah. We don't know for sure. One way or another, these guys show up. They, while they saw the sign, they packed everything up, they gathered up the entourage, they budgeted for the trip, and they made this long journey, right, and arrived in Jerusalem seeking a king. Worship does something to us. Here we see that worship drives us to seek what we value. Worship drives us to seek or pursue what we value. You see, that's what worship is. Worship is a value system. And what we worship something, we give it the chief place in our hearts. It's what we value the most. So if we worship God, we value him the most. And then we order our lives appropriately. But so often we don't value God, we value something else. And as we said earlier, it's often just ourselves ultimately at the top of that pyramid. Worship drives us, though, to pursue, to seek after what we value or what we love. And so I think there's an open question here with Matthew in these first two verses that he asks of his reader. He's encouraging us to consider what is it that we are looking for? These guys were excited about the arrival of the king. So excited, they piled in this caravan and made that journey without air conditioning, right? I mean, this is, this is it. No, no DVD screens in the head, back of the headrest. You know, to enjoy that journey. I mean, they, they at great cost, they came. They're so excited about this king. Now listen, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, I can tell you who wasn't excited about a king being born. Herod. He wasn't excited. He was quite happy with the way he had set things up. They weren't kings, but they were looking for a king. How about you this morning? Are you looking for a king? Maybe you're looking for something. Maybe you're looking for that bigger paycheck or that nicer house or a better car, the functioning heating system this last week, right? I want the heat to work, right? Maybe I want the new job or I I want a different boyfriend or girlfriend or I, I want my kids to behave in this way or that way. I want this degree, right? You see, worship drives us to seek what we value or what we love, but the question is, are we looking for a king? Do we value our king, our authority, our Lord. There's humility in this road trip, I think, where these guys are saying this king is worth pursuing. Could you say that this morning, that your life reflects that Jesus, the Messiah, is worth pursuing? What would it look like for you to pursue Jesus? Well, you don't have to take a trip to Jerusalem, although it might be helpful from time to time, but The issue is not geography here. The issue is attitude. Worshiping God doesn't happen by accident. You're not going to accidentally value Jesus above all else. You're not going to just wake up one morning and, whoops, I made Jesus the priority of my life. Well, okay, I guess I'll just run with that. No, I think there's a, a, a positive model given to us here by Matthew of, with, of intentionality, of purpose. That these magi said, we're going to, we're going to pursue this king. 
And so you and I could, I think, learn from their example. Worship does something to us. Will we pursue Jesus as our king? Again, you don't have to travel to Jerusalem to do this. Of course, how would we do it then? Well, we could think about prioritizing getting to know the king, which today looks like spending time in his word, valuing his word on a regular basis in our lives, reading it, thinking about it, talking about it, praying through it. If you don't spend time in his word, you, you could probably question, well, do I really value him? Or we could, we could intentionally pursue Jesus as our king by spending time serving him, right? Where we value him and therefore we live according to what he calls us to do. And so that means serving him, which means serving others, right? There's this others-orientedness about Jesus worshipers that is beautiful. And yet so often, every day, our primary question isn't how can I meet their need? It's how can I meet whose? My need. Not how can I help them achieve what they're, what they're shooting for. No, but how can I get what I want? We can, of course, intentionally pursue Jesus by spending time with his people. When we're around other people who value Jesus, it helps us to value Jesus. We encourage each other in it. We help to correct each other. We spur one another on in our love for Christ. Worship does something to us. It drives us to seek what we value and what we love. And maybe this morning, we could just ask the question, do I really value Jesus? That kind of a question, it'll mess you up. (laughs) It'll rock your boat. Just like it did Herod and Jerusalem. Watch verse 3. Matthew goes on, when Herod, excuse me, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Okay, pause right here. When Herod gets deeply disturbed, people die. That's why Herod being deeply disturbed causes Jerusalem to be deeply disturbed. Are you with me? Right? So it's like, uh uh-oh, dad's coming home. He's in one of those moods, right? It's like that kind of a deal, except a lot worse. So here, when King Herod heard this, he's deeply disturbed. Other translations, like, greatly agitated. I mean, it gets to the point, right? He's mad. And so all Jerusalem's like, what's going on? There's this big hubbub, right? So Herod, he gathers the experts. Verse 4, so he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Okay, pause. Let's get the seminary guys in. Let's get the church nerds in, right? Yeah, let's get these guys in and let's get them in here and let's th- let them tell us, Herod says, where is the Messiah going to be born? Because surely there's some information about this that God has revealed previously. I don't, Herod is not a man of faith, but nonetheless, he's going to leverage the men of faith that are in Jerusalem and use them to try to get what he wants. So he gathers up the scribes, the professional Old Testament scholars here, the leaders of, uh, of Jews in Jerusalem. And so they tell him, verse five, they know. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Duh, right? Micah 5, 2, anyone? Come on, right? He's like, surely you know this. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Because this is what was written by the prophet. And then they quote him. Now, in this quotation, Matthew clarifies the meaning for us. But just watch verse 6. This is from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Even though Bethlehem's a really small town. That's the point. Bethlehem's a nothing town. It's just a tiny little village. It's not much to it. 
but you're not by no means least. Why? Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In the context of Micah, you have this moment where Micah says, there still is coming the one son of David who will rule over Israel. And the problem in Micah's day, uh, four centuries before Christ, the problem in Micah's day is you, you have this issue of corrupt leaders who aren't leading God's people. And so here the calling is, oh no, there's going to be one born in Micah, excuse me, in Bethlehem. And uh, the prophet Micah foretells this, and that one born will be the promised son of David, and he's going to lead everybody the way we should be led. That's, that's the glorious promise. And so there was expectation that the Messiah would be born in the small town of Bethlehem. You would think that would have, have been really exciting to the scribes. You would have think, as this guy, as this whole entourage show up and they ask about the birthplace of the Messiah, you get all the scribes together, hey, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and everybody's like, what should we do? Probably we should go see. It's all of six miles. I can show you. Let's show them, buddy. Just so they can. Don't take my word for it. Okay. Let's show them on the map. It's six miles. Boom. It's right there. Like a serious water balloon launcher? could No, not, not that far. But I mean, it's not that far. Okay. It's six miles. Uh, in, in the first century, you could walk it in a day. No problem. It's not bad. So the, I, the theory is, okay, if you gather up all these religious scholars, basically pastors, and you say to these guys, hey, uh, we think the Messiah may have been born. Where is he supposed to be born so we can go check it out? Bethlehem. You know what those guys did? They went home. They went back to the office. Maybe they were just glad they got out of a meeting with Herod alive. Maybe they went to Costco. I don't know. But they didn't go to Bethlehem. We know that. They didn't go to Bethlehem. You see, worship does something to us. And when we worship ourselves as king, right, when we're the center, worship of self leads to spiritual complacency. Spiritual complacency. If you want to know what that is, in in the most modern lingo we can find, it, it means meh. It's just blah. Spiritual complacency means, eh, I don't really, I'm not that interested in valuing Jesus, the Messiah, more than myself. I'm more interested in my thing. And so here you have these religious leaders gathered up by Herod. You've got this arrival of the Magi causing this great stir, no doubt controversial. And yet what happens with the leaders? Nothing. Notice, by the way, Matthew continues his, his, uh, his proof that Jesus is the promised deliverer of the Old Testament. So, Last week, we had Isaiah 7. This week, we've got Micah 5. Next week, we'll have three more Old Testament passages where Matthew says, here it is, boom. He's the one. He's bringing the promised kingdom of the Old Testament. Worship of self leads to spiritual complacency. And we need to just ask the question, wait a minute. Do I have more in common with these disinterested leaders than I do with the Magi? Where I'm just too busy living my life to be concerned with Jesus stuff. The idea of a king might rock your boat, or it may just be something that you ignore. So you might just ask the question, am I willing to be disrupted by King Jesus? Am I willing to to go and to see who he is and what he's all about? Am I willing to put my life actually on the table and say, okay, if you're the king and you're the authority, then let's talk. What do you call me to? 
in my personal life, in my educational pursuits, in my career, right? With my family. Like, Lord Jesus, what do you call me to? When we have that attitude, it will create a stir. It will cause a lot of change. It will cause a dust up. Or maybe we'll just go on to Costco and we'll go out to eat and we'll go to the next work thing and we'll go to class, school starts again and we'll just do the things that we want to do. And you know what? We don't really have time to get all into the Jesus thing. Matthew says, that's not worship of God, that's worship of self. You're your king. And it doesn't only lead to complacency, it can lead to much worse. Watch verse 7. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, and read your Bibles very carefully here, okay? He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and, what does the Bible say there? Worship him. That's the second time we've had that term, worship. The wise men, they said in verse 2, we saw a star rising and it's rising and have come to worship him. Here in verse 8, Herod says, oh yeah, no, me too. When you go and find, and he, you know, he, he did it with a straight face. Yeah, no, I mean, I want to worship him too. So when you find him in Bethlehem, why don't you send me the GPS coordinates so that I can send them to my hits, so I can come and worship him too, right? I, he, listen, you don't have to be a, a Bible scholar to know that Herod the not-so-great has zero interest in worshiping the newborn king. No, he doesn't want to worship him. He wants to do violence to him. He wants to remove. You see, worship of self as king not only leads to spiritual complacency, but it also leads to deceit and hypocrisy. Deceit and hypocrisy. Herod has no problem lying about his spiritual allegiance here. He has no problem being a hypocrite in front of these magi, and he has no problem manipulating them to get what he wants. Jesus calls us to a different kind of living, and it's not easy. And so we will be motivated to either lie about our allegiance to him or manipulate others to get what we want and thus avoid paying the cost of having an allegiance to him. Let's say it another way. Saying you worship Jesus and actually worship, worshiping Jesus are not the same thing. Saying you worship Jesus and then actually worshiping him are not the same thing. When we're being hypocritical or deceitful here, we'll justify our sin. We won't, we won't be honest about it. Rather than repent of it, we'll just make excuses. And when we make those excuses, we'll refuse to pursue change for Jesus' glory. No, instead of that, we'll just do what we want. We'll tolerate self-centeredness. Maybe we'll just compare ourselves to other people in our, in our culture and say, oh, I'm not as bad as them. We'll adapt to whatever the crowd wants us to be. And again, we'll manipulate others to get what we want. Unfortunately, this is very common. Why? Because so many struggle with the worship of self as king. We will deceive we will be hypocrites. We will manipulate to get what we want. 
So you might just ask the question, when it comes to pursuing Jesus, is it something that you, you have done or are doing because you've chosen to do it? Or are you doing it simply to put on the charade? To wear the mask that you're supposed to, to wear? So interesting. Um, one of the highest Sundays for church attendance in the year is Mother's Day. Do you know why that is? Because children, adult children, will think, oh, I'm going to spend time with mom. Mom wants me to go to church, so I should go to church on Sunday. Listen, moms, you know we love you, right? The reason you should go to church and worship Jesus is not because your mom wants you to. No offense, moms. The reason you should go to church and worship Jesus is because you value Jesus above all else and because he's the promised king of the Old Testament who fulfills all of our greatest needs. I mean, that's, that's why we worship Jesus. I mean, you know, so there's a million ways. You can think about it. Well, what, what is it? Why am, I actually, why am I actually doing this? Why am I pursuing or am I pursuing? And again, here, Herod, Herod you know, he talks the talk. He picks up the lingo. He says, oh, yeah, I'm here. I want to worship him too. So when you find where he is, come and tell me. Again, worship does something to us. And when we are worshiping ourselves, it's ugly. We'll, we'll be willing to lie and to deceive and to manipulate and to put on the facade just to look good. There are two paths of worship, the worship of self or the worship of the real deal. Watch verse 9, as now the Magi finally arrive in Bethlehem. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. Okay, pause. So this is, first of all, why we know, again, back to the map, six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. So uh, a generic uh, astronomical phenomenon could not have indicated a difference between Jerusalem and Bethlehem because, again, they're only six miles apart. So whatever they saw that brought them there, I think is miraculous because now it had disappeared and then it comes back and it actually drives them or it leads them six miles here to Bethlehem. And then even in Bethlehem, it takes them to the right house. Now, don't forget from last week why Bethlehem, right? Because this is where uh, Joseph's family is from. Of course, Joseph is uh, a longtime descendant of King David. So there, uh, this is, of course, uh, where David, King David is from in the Old Testament. Um, so they've come there for the, the census. Jesus has been born. They stayed with the family. There wasn't any room for them in the upper room. So they likely stayed at the bottom level with all the animals, uh, according to Luke chapter 2. So they're there in the family house. Either they stay in that family house with their relatives, or they picked up another house uh, and, and just chose to maybe permanently relocate, or at least to stay there for a while. More on that next week. So one way or another, they're there in the house, okay? So we have nothing that indicates that the Magi arrive the very day or night that Jesus is born. Uh, so, you know, we maybe in your, your nativities at home, we just move the Magi out a little bit. So it just like shows them on their way, right? I mean, it's, I'm okay with it. Like, they're in the neighborhood, but they were just probably more on the way. Uh, honestly, technically speaking, they could have been there any time between a few weeks and probably two years. That, that would have been the, the time frame that they could have visited in. And again, we don't know. So all that to say, Bethlehem's not a big deal, okay? Small village. We've got a picture, not from 2,000 years ago, but from the early 1900s. And uh, frankly, in the early 1900s, Bethlehem hadn't changed so much. Like, that's it. You're looking at the whole thing. There's not more. 
Okay, so that's it. And uh, you can see still some uh, shepherding going on in the area. And uh, Jerusalem's six miles on the other side of the hill going the other way. So that just kind of gives you a sense of the lay of the land. Um, so you can just kind of picture it. So they arrive in Bethlehem, and the star leads them to, like, you know, the one house, okay? And it was this one. No, I don't just, we don't know. Come on. We don't know which one. Stop it. Stop it. Okay, so, so they get to the house. Verse 10. And actually, I think this is the climax of the narrative this morning. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Now, this verse is actually hard to translate. There are two modifiers that make it difficult. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. There's an adjective. They were, they were overwhelmed with great joy. There's also an adverb. They rejoiced exceedingly. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Well, in English, that sounds ridiculous. So, you know, different translations have different ways of trying to make it work. But I actually like the longer uh, way of saying it. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were so happy that they found the place where the king was born. They were so excited, but the Bible doesn't use the word happiness. It uses this word joy, which, if we're paying attention in the scripture, is about way more than circumstantial happiness, right? They actually rejoiced because the one that they were waiting for, even as pagans who didn't know, they finally found. And so they've arrived there. And so they rejoice at at finding the, the place where the Messiah has been born. Verse 11, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they, what does your Bible say? They worshiped him. Third time in just 11 verses. Matthew's making a point. They worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There's been a lot of uh, internet chatter about gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is what you need to know about gold, frankincense, and myrrh, okay? They were expensive, all right? It could say gold, Armani, and Lexus or something like that. You know, it's, the point is, these are, these, and that, those probably aren't even good enough. Like, I don't even know. I don't shop in those stores. So I don't know, whatever it is. But these, these were gifts that were known in royal courts. We do have some um, literary evidence of that that's the case. So these are gifts fitting for a king, all right? They're gifts appropriate. They're very costly and expensive gifts. And so here, they bow in worship to this newborn king, And they offer him their costly gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh that certainly he is worth and so much more. And then, just in case we were too concerned about Herod's plot, verse 12, being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. So they were actually uh, divinely guided by the Lord in a dream, so they just headed home from Bethlehem through another way. Listen, worship does something to us. When we worship self, it's ugly. It leads to complacency. It leads to deceit and hypocrisy. But when we worship Jesus as king, when it's right, when we worship Jesus as king, that's the key. It's the key to genuine joy, and it's the key to distinct purpose. And that's really where Matthew ends up in this little piece of the the nativity story. He focuses on joy and purpose. And let's just talk about those in turn. First of all, genuine joy. Again, we're all in pursuit of that experience, that satisfaction, that, you know, that just, ah, yes, this is it. And we'll chase it. And here's the challenge. Because of our worship struggle, we'll chase it through worldly means. 
We'll chase it through uh, sinful means, or we'll chase it by turning God's good gifts into idols themselves. So we think money's going to give me that joy, or food is going to give me that joy, or this relationship is going to give me that joy. But here, Matthew's just setting us up, and he says, you just got to know that if you really want to rejoice exceedingly with great joy, it comes from worshiping Jesus as king. That's where you're going to get it. Life's mystery solved. <laughs> there it is. Right? Because so often we spend so much time and energy trying to get happy, trying to get content, right? trying to make ourselves fulfilled. All the while, and it is counterintuitive, we have to say no to ourselves. I'm not going to worship myself as king. I'm going to worship Jesus as king. And when we worship Jesus as king, that's the key to genuine joy, to real joy, lasting joy. In fact, we can argue biblically, eternal joy. It's the best. And we can't beat it. And we can't replace it. There's no other source. Now, why, why does this happen? Well, it happens because of who Jesus is and what he does. Now, listen, this means we have to be a little bit aware of the rest of the Gospel of Matthew here. But here's the reality. Jesus is the promised deliverer of the Old Testament. Matthew really emphasizes that in his, in his gospel. He says all the needs that were exposed after Genesis 3 when sin entered the world, right? All the need where, where we see the world is broken and it needs a redeemer, it needs a rescuer, right? It needs the right king, right? We need the solution to warfare. We need the solution to theft. We need the solution to broken families. We need the solution to, to uh, you know, poverty and, and the poor being treated bad. We, we need the solution to injustice, right? We need that. And all those promises look forward to the arrival of the one. And Matthew says, he's the one. It's because of his identity, right, as the Messiah, that he's the source of genuine joy. Now, if he wasn't Emmanuel, God with us, then we'd be putting too much hope in him. But because he's the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh for us, we can say, oh, actually, yeah, he can handle that load. We can find genuine joy with him. It's because of his identity, but it's also because of his mission and what he did. Jesus not only taught and healed... But climactically in Matthew, he goes to the cross for us. Why? Because in order to provide joy for us, he has to remove the problem of sin. And so what he does on the cross is he pays the penalty for our sin. And as he rises from the dead, he conquers sin and death so that anyone who puts their faith in him not only can be forgiven, but can now be a member of the kingdom of God and experience this joy you want to rejoice exceedingly with great joy? There's only one way to get there, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ as your king. That's it. That's the gospel of Matthew in a nutshell. And so if we're going to worship ourselves, we can expect disappointment. We can expect failure. We can expect discouragement. But when we worship Jesus as king, even in the difficult times of our lives, we can expect joy. Worshiping Jesus as king is not only the key to genuine joy, it's also the key to distinct purpose. You could say it this way. There's no joy without justification. There's also no joy without sanctification. Now, what, where's the distinct purpose here? You're going, Pastor Ryan, where are you getting that? You're making that up. All right, just work with me. It's in the gifts. It's in the gifts. So they planned ahead. I don't know if you did your gift giving yet. I know some of you are waiting till after church. You're like, Pastor Ryan, can we wrap this up? Because I got presents waiting for me, okay? Don't worry, they're going to be there. 
Uh, when we give gifts, the, the best part about giving gifts, I think, is when you're the giver of the gift and you've put the, the thought and effort and maybe even shopping expertise or creative mojo right into said gift, right? When you've done that, and then you see the person open the gift, and when they're so excited about it, right, then it's like, yes, mission accomplished, right? That, that, that gift being brought, it's, it gives, it's given with purpose. There's a plan, right? These guys traveled from far away. They knew they were going, expecting the arrival of a king. They said, what should we give a king? I know what we should give a king, the best. The best. What's the best we have? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Done. Got it. Maybe they traded for it along the way. But whatever. They said, money is no object here. We're going to get the best and we're going to give him the best. See, they came with that purpose of costly worship. We're going to, we're going to bow before this king. We're going to give him the best that we have because he's worth it. If you want to know what you were created for, it wasn't just for joy. It was to live with distinct purpose. To give your best. To the Lord. All of it. See, that's where this gets kind of touchy, frankly. Because most often, this is how people approach their relationship with Jesus. They're like, yeah, I put my faith in Jesus. Forgive me my sins. Thanks for that. Appreciate it. Uh, that's going to come in handy when I die. But for the rest of my life, I'll just, uh, you know, if I have leftover money, then I can maybe part with some of that, tax purposes and whatnot. And if I have leftover time, I could devote some leftover time to him. If I had leftover energy, of which there never is any, but if I had leftover energy, I could leverage that for him, right? That's the temptation. I got to keep, you know, for me. And then if there's extra, then I can give Jesus out of the extra. That's not living with distinct purpose. That is living with purpose. It's just the purpose is to glorify yourself. But here, as we see the Magi give, the, give these costly gifts, it's actually a confrontational moment because Matthew's saying, what about you? Are you willing to give? No, I mean really give? To reorient your life and to say, Jesus, what is it that you have called me to? Here's all that I have. Here's all that I am. I belong to you. We'll be there before too long, but Jesus calls disciples. And when he, when he tasks those disciples to make disciples, it's the same calling. And the calling is, follow me. Follow me. Yes, you need to give up your previous agenda. It may not mean moving or changing your job or whatever, but it certainly means thinking differently about why you live where you live and what your role is at your workplace and how you behave at school. You know, here Matthew says, you're going to follow Jesus. You got to follow Jesus. And he's worth so much more than our leftovers. Worship does something to us. When we worship Jesus as king, we find the key to genuine joy and distinct purpose. These magi bowed. I know we, we've talked about this from time to time. Americans aren't into bowing. We're just not into it. It's not a thing. In fact, it's kind of like American not to bow, right? We don't do that. We don't bow to a human ruler. Fair enough. But I just wonder if maybe that's a bad habit of not bowing before a human ruler. Maybe that leads us to saying, I don't need to bow to a heavenly ruler either. I don't need to submit to him. Really, I'm the one that's most important. If anything, he should probably bow to me. We would never say that. But man, sometimes I fear we live like it. 
Yes, we were created for genuine joy and distinct purpose, but the only way to get there is through worship. And maybe you're here this morning, and you might confess, I've never worshipped. Meaning, I've never bowed to Jesus as King. I've never trusted in Him for the forgiveness of my sins, because frankly, my sin is not a big deal to me. But I also don't have genuine joy. And I may be living with purpose, but it's not His. And I just want to encourage you this morning that as God has graciously given you breath this Christmas day, you have the opportunity to worship. You don't have to travel to Bethlehem to do it. It just means confessing you're a sinner. Agreeing with God, yes, I am a sinner, I have failed. It means worshiping Jesus as your King. Trusting Him in His death and His resurrection. For yes, the forgiveness of your sins, but for so much more. And experiencing, yes, genuine joy and now a distinct purpose in living. Living for His glory. Worship does something to us. Verse 12, the Magi go home. Different route. They went home. What did they go home to? I'll tell you what they went home to. They went home to drama. Okay, they were on a work trip. Dad's ever been on a work trip? When you get home from that trip, there's trouble at home. They went home to drama in the court. They went home to issues with their families. They went home to political problems in their homeland. They went home to financial struggles. Maybe they went home to health issues. Okay, they, they went home to drama. But you know what? They went home changed. Because they went home not as worshipers of self, but as worshipers of Jesus. Poet T.S. Eliot wrote a poem inspired by Matthew 2, 1-12. It's called The Journey of the Magi. He came to faith later in life, so it's interesting to see him leverage his poetic skills here for spiritual ends. But I think he captures it nicely, these guys going home. Listen to what he said. He says, speaking as the Magi, we returned to our places these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation. With an alien people clutching their gods, I should be glad of another death. Eliot's talked about Jesus' death in the poem on our behalf, but now he's alluding to this other death, a death to self, a death to following the crowd, a death to just being a normal American, right? A death to just following what everybody else is doing. A death to making myself king in my worldview. Yeah, they went home, he says, but they weren't at ease anymore in the old dispensations. And there's the alien people all clutching their gods, all going to line up tomorrow to exchange them for different ones, right? To get their gods what they want. He says they, they went home worshipers. They went home different. And they died to themselves as they went. I wonder, is that us? Worship does something to us. If we worship self, it's not pretty. Man, but when we worship Jesus, it's the key to genuine joy and distinct purpose. The question you need to ask is, what has worship done to you? Would you pray with me? We'll ask God to help us consider that. Lord, we thank you so much for Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 this morning. And Lord, we thank you for this clear contrast that Matthew presents.
between Herod and the disinterested rulers in Jerusalem and these magi. Lord, these Gentiles from so far away who, by your grace, saw a sign and came to worship the newborn king. Lord, we praise you that you are doing that. Even today, you are rescuing people who are so far from you by your mercy, Lord, just by by your sovereign grace. And we praise you for doing that work. Lord, as we look at this text, we ask that you would help us by your spirit to be willing to confess the areas in our lives where we are worshiping ourselves, where we are king. Lord, help us see where we're stubbornly refusing to bow to you and to surrender control. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from spiritual complacency and just not being interested. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from deceit and hypocrisy and manipulation. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see how valuable you are. And Lord, we pray that you would lead us in totally reorienting our lives around you at the center. Lord, help us. Help us to see that the only way we're going to find this real joy is by worshiping you. And Lord, help us to see clearly our distinct purpose. Yes, worship is costly, Lord, and we we pray that you would help, help us to understand what it looks like for each of us to surrender our agenda and adopt yours and to give and to serve and to live for your glory. Lord, we praise you that you are doing this. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, you are the promised deliverer of the Old Testament who provides not only forgiveness, but now access into your kingdom. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to view you as our king and to worship you as such. So help us to do that even now as we go. And we pray these things in dependence on you. And in your name, Lord Jesus, amen.